This is part three of a three-part podcast. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul conversation today at permies.com slash consult. Permies.com slash consult. I think now is a perfect time to describe this new J-tube that you made. So it's portable and it is much bigger. It's lined with a uh, split fire brick for protection of the, uh, uh, the ceramic board. Uh, and then there's, uh, four inches of ceramic board insulation surrounding that inside of a, uh, inside of a, uh, uh, sheet metal wrap, uh, with, uh, um, with loops on the ends so that we can slide a pole, poles on either side. So up to four people can carry each part, um, depending on what we've got perched on it for weight. But the whole thing, I want to say each bit weighs between, we have, I say 50 pounds for the, uh, riser and, uh, 60, 70 pounds for, uh, this, uh, uh, three and a half foot long, uh, insulated firebox. The burn box is, uh, uh, is pretty big, but it's mostly lightweight material. Uh, and it's got clean outs on both ends so that we can, when we get it clogged full of coals, we can, uh, actually push them out from behind. Um, so, uh, and then it's got, uh, uh, corner, um, angle iron, um, brackets to give it strength to be able to support a kiln either or a kiln or a forge box or a, uh, um, uh, or a water heater tank either above or below the riser, depending on what's needed for our, our, uh, for what we're, what whatever experiment we're doing. So, uh, it all holds together, takes apart to move it. So the predecessors were six inch stubby and, uh, they did a great job of heating up our rocket oven. But one of the concerns was, is that if we made a full size J tube that took full sized wood and was an eight inch J tube instead of a six inch, then, um, I mean, it would burn roughly twice as much wood, almost twice as much wood, not quite, but almost twice as much wood at once. But it would make the oven for the rocket oven be stupid high up in the air. <laughs> like this is now an awkward oven. Um, yes. so, but at the same time, what we wanted was we wanted something that would be Far better. It was going to 
function better, run cleaner, and run much, much hotter. So instead of using our small, shrimpy, six-inch portable rockets, this is an eight-inch with a full-sized wood feed and a full-sized riser. It is it is much bigger. Now, for the first kiln, then we take the two apart, and then we put this uh, this broken electric kiln on top of the burn tunnel, and then we set the riser on top of the kiln. And yes, and so, uh, but the the kiln isn't particularly insulated. I think it's just a bunch of fire brick, isn't it? It's a bunch of insulated insulated fire brick, so it's poorly insulated, but it is insulated. Uh, one of the next, uh, well, the the stratification uh, box that we used was much better insulated, and the um, uh, and the mini uh, fridge kiln was much better insulated. Um, so uh, as we're um, moving what we're moving toward is to have a larger uh inline um kiln box that is better insulated um because that's where we lose most of our heat um and that will that will make a big difference so you're going to move from two banana boxes of wood with something the size of a mini fridge uh, up to something that's the size of a jumbo refrigerator kind of sized or a jumbo freezer size and still using two banana boxes worth of wood. That's the plan. Being smart about it. Yeah. Okay. But you know, all right. The big thing, what the, so I want to wrap up on, on the kiln. The, the thing that's exciting about the kiln. Is that, um, it got global attention during the PDJ. I, th- I think it was very, very profound. What a, what a big difference. Uh, what a, what a, what a, a, a giant accomplishment. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I think we should all be very, very proud of what came out of the PDJ last year. And then, of course, this will be in the movie that we're going to try to make and, uh, for this up and coming Kickstarter. And so everybody, everybody will be able to see it. Everybody will be able to enjoy it. Of course, if you get the free heat movie, you can see the prototype that we made, uh, shortly before when we shot this movie. Anything more to say about the kiln? Nope. I'm just, yeah, really, it's really been great to work with, uh, and bring in, uh, all these excited, passionate, uh, people wanting to work on this. So we had a, um, and a lot of the build was brought forward by people who showed up because they wanted to use the forge, uh, attachment that we were dinking around with. And it got a little bit of attention. And, uh, I mean, from us, we were more focused on getting the, uh, the, the engine working and making sure we had all the accessories. But there's a lot of people who threw in on the, uh, on the build. Um, so that they could, uh, um, so they could bang on pieces of metal that got hot. And we were able to get our, our metal a lot hotter than in previous forge attempts. 
uh, using just a slit in the side of the, uh, of the pottery kiln box while we were firing pottery. So now we got, we have two different kinds of forges. Uh, the, the first kind, which we kept calling a sword forge, meaning there'll be a place to insert some steel or iron and then get, have it get to be yellow hot and then bring it out and be able to beat on it and shape it. The other kind being more of a smelter, something where we'll put a crucible with uh, some kind of metal in it and we'll get it converted into liquid. We will melt it into a liquid and then we'll be able to pour it. Now, I know that we bought some crucibles so we could do this. Did they get tested? They did not get tested. The crucible, we didn't get to the crucibles. Uh, okay. We got, uh, we did get our hot tub heater built, but we kept, uh, kept getting so hot that it kept blowing out the braises on the, uh, um, on the, uh, tank. So, uh, we'll go at that again at the PPJ this summer. Yeah. Yeah. But now you did do the forge thing. You were describing that a little bit. So basically while it was in the middle of kiln mode, you stuck some metal in there, got it nice and hot, and you were able to beat on it and reshape it. Yeah. We were able to get white hot. And uh, um, before we had gotten to orange hot, and now we got to white hot. Um, <laughs> so that was that was nice. That was very nice. Uh, and uh, – uh, got a lot of people, got a lot of giggles out of that. We had, uh, three or four people take home their own, their own, uh, forge kiln that they built there. Um, and, uh, um, we're really excited. They were really excited to continue with experimenting with that. So, uh, I, you know, of course, We've done the forge thing many times, but we haven't done it in a way where it was like, cause this time we had Lisa Orr there, an expert ceramicist, and, and she was able to share with the ceramics world. Maybe what we need to do is to find ourselves an expert, uh, blacksmith who can, you know, do something similar. Like, like we'll, we'll, we'll set up all these different ways of melting metal and, uh, uh, setting up a forge that, because right now, um, they have to have a, a bunch of coal and a fan to blow on the coal to get, to get things hot enough to be able to work with them. So we would be instead yeah. doing something where it's like no fan, no coal. It's just sticks. You know, and that's all we need. So, uh, uh, but that, that'll be another day. But for this year, okay, great, great accomplishments. Mud, what would be your next favorite project that you worked on at the PTJ last year? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm a sucker for a hot tub. So that was, that was exciting. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and, and I was also very excited because I've put several, several events worth of work into the, uh, the hybrid solar, uh, rocket, um, uh, 
food dehydrator and we got somebody there who uh, wanted to use it and used it a whole bunch and um, and tested it and compared it to the the solar height dehydrator and uh, and it performed favorably um, so that was that was exciting it does seem like people like that a lot more than the old one just because I mean, you can have your food continuing to dry through the night. Yes, yes. And and so this event is when the sun is out the most. Uh, so we have very long days, but even still, there's still night. And and it's kind of like when you're trying to dry food, you want it to, to dry quickly. You don't want to have it stop the drying process and sit there and and kind of get funky. You you want it to yep. keep drying and become a complete, completely dried all the way through without stopping. The faster yeah. you can dry it, the better. I want to throw in that, you know, it's, it's one thing you, you have a, the experiment going on up there in Montana where oftentimes your relative humidity in the summertime is, you know, reasonably low. Um, I think it would be really interesting to take this experiment and bring it down here to like where I am, where in that last late summer, early fall, oftentimes the relative humidity is very, very high. And um, so even though we might have a lot of sunlight, if you don't get in a solar dehydrator, if you don't get it fully dehydrated during the first day, then you have very, very moist uh, air at night. So you're having to really fight with that. Uh, it's one of the reasons that solar dehydrators never really caught on in this area. So I would be really interested to think about how this hybrid might work in an area where you have to fight with, you know, very high humidity, ambient humidity. Yeah. Or, or Cleveland where, uh, you can get, you can get stuff growing on your teeth if you don't brush them every day. So <laughs> yeah, you want, so that's a, that, yeah, so yeah, there are, there are a lot of areas where we don't get the sunshine, we don't get, where we need, we need the, the, the blast of, of, uh, wood heat to dehydrate things. Um, so yeah, that was, that was exciting. The full build of that is in the Free Heat movie. And, uh, and the Free Heat movie was recorded in October. So, um, you know, we, we didn't get a lot of chance to test it that year. We did do it. We did test it a little bit, but not a lot. But yeah, at this event, it's the following summer. And, uh, a lot of people got a lot of different foodie bits. And, uh, while we're at the PTJ, then it is being actively used a lot. Um, and so we got that on video that hopefully will be part of this, uh, this movie we're about to make for this Kickstarter. But I'm not yeah. sure how much. It doesn't seem like we have a lot of video of that. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't hurt for us to get a little bit more video as we go into this, uh, Kickstarter or maybe afterwards, um, get that project to be a little bit more robust. Uh, but yes. It did turn out to be every everybody loves. I mean, the old food dehydrator, the giant solar food dehydrator, is rather magnificent and glorious. And this one is better. And and uh, 
I, I kind of feel like it would be good to first do a round of testing of without firing up the rocket assist. How do the two perform yeah. next to each other? Because uh yours has a much steeper uh, uh solar face on it. And it has all those yeah. rocks inside of it. So it's kind of like yeah. uh it's possible that on a sunny day, especially like August and September, that the lower angle on the face is going to get much hotter. And then, uh, then, then the old one, then the old rocket mass heater. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the old solar food dehydrator. And, uh, so it, it might perform better, but then because the rocks are in it, it might continue to move air through, uh, into the night because the rocks will have gotten heated up. And then at the same time, it'll make, we have all, we have, we tested all that with, um, I, Trying to remember his name from uh, San Diego, um, the Austin. guy who does all the uh, Austin. Thank you. Yeah, we tested Austin. I got to give him the credit. He tested exhaustively the the t- both of those and uh, to see how they behave against each other. So we have some really good data that we should dig up on on how they perform. Uh, one of the things I was curious to see was whether uh, see when you the more of an angle you go at, you might get more sun, but then that also slows down your chimney effect um, from the rising uh, heated air and and the rising heated uh, um, gases uh, in the in the rocket. If you're if you've got that at an angle too, uh, the chimney there, the exhaust. So um, having it at a steeper angle, um, we we're aiming at better production for later in the season when we might be having more of a harvest um, and less sun for optimal use then and um, and also to uh, optimize the air throughput, the velocity of the air throughput. And the thermal mass, I think, is going to extend our our day, whether or not we fire up that oven, uh, the uh the rocket inside, but uh, but Austin uh, tested that, and I cannot remember. I remember the results were encouraging, but I was a bit preoccupied with some other things. Yeah, I uh, I'll have to look over the results. I I I know that I saw some of the video so far on that, and it it looks promising. I hope we have a lot more video. We'll have to see. Uh, that's, that's what this Kickstarter is going to be all about. Should we dig into all this video to make a full ass movie out of it? But, um, yeah. uh, hopefully, you know, the, the Kickstarter will get funded and we will proceed and we will make this full. Absolutely. Movie. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm very excited. About, and I think that's a, another cool thing about all of this stuff being here is that we've done this for so many years now. Combined with running the boot camp all year, that we now have like quite a collection of artifacts. I know that I've been to other sites that were permaculture sites, and I kind of feel like what they have is really light. And um, so I feel really good that the amount of cool things that we have here in the realm of permaculture technology – is very robust 
then when we want to take on a project, it's kind of like we're go- we're able to do it at level three. Whereas if the project was being attempted somewhere else, you'd have to start at level one. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So when we built the uh, solar food dehydrator with Rocket Assist, we built it because we had a uh, solar food dehydrator that was really big. And we built that after we built two other predecessors of solar food dehydrators. So we, we have this evolution going. The kiln uh, came after a prototype, which came after a prototype, which came after a prototype, which came after our old kiln. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we're able to make these progressive leaps because of all of the, the stuff we have here. So anyway. All right. Mud, what's, what, what is the next project that you want to talk about that you were involved in? Uh, well, I think we got a bunch of people sitting here, uh, very patiently for, a long time while I talked, and maybe we should hear more about their project. Pick one of them. You, you pick. All right. Oh. <laughs> um. Okay, so um, I really got a, a like an excited giggle out of Opalin's um uh wheel for uh, her spinning wheel. Every time I had a breather, I would go look at it, seeing how you could make that out of junk parts pretty much anywhere. And uh, uh, and so I want to hear more about that. It does seem like uh, when we're going to talk about permaculture technology or, you know, the permaculture technology jamboree grew out of the old appropriate technology course, uh, and it seems like either of these labels that the the flagship product or the poster child is going to be something made out of bicycle stuff. So I think that this is the first time we've had something actually built out of bicycle stuff. So, Opalin, you made a spinning wheel out of bicycle parts. I did. It's actually a charka style or a miniature great wheel style spinning wheel. It um, does not have a treadle, so there's no foot power. It's all hand powered. And it uses um, parts from one bicycle. I was able to, um, I did a lot of research and looked at a lot of bicycle things and bicycle spinning wheel things, and some of them used um, two sets of front forks, so the front suspension part of the bike. And I chose to use the front suspension for the spindle part of the spinning wheel and the rear triangle assembly and wheel from the back part of a bicycle, if that makes sense to those of you who haven't seen it. Well, hopefully, uh, everybody's going to get a chance to see it eventually. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, let's, um, I, I would say that the, the treadle part, it doesn't have that part yet. Sure. Okay. 
You're, the, the subtext of, of your single word response is, you build it, I'll wait here. <laughs> uh, it certainly could be. It's, um, just a little bit difficult with the way that the rear suspension assembly portion currently is to add that component to this particular wheel. Okay. I think it might work better if you had, um, two sets of front forks. So it may be a, a new build instead of a, an augment to this build. Okay. So no treadle. So then you have to keep spinning the wheel. Yes. Um, uh, and does the wheel still have the tire on it? Not the rubber part, but we have the wheel rim and we kept the, the tire protection bead in there, um, to reduce wear on the string that connects the large wheel to the small spindle. Okay. All right. So, um, it's, it's possible that uh we could augment that wheel with weights so that way when you spin it it'll keep itself spinning for longer sure um to me that adds a lot of effort to the person actually moving the wheel cuz you have to be able to spin it forward to spin the wool spin right. it in reverse and then forward. So there's a lot of stopping and starting with this style of wheel so okay. that you can load the spun wool onto the spindle. All right. So, so. you could, but I wouldn't add very much. <laughs> it just I'm just thinking that when I saw you uh, doing it, it, it just seemed like you had to kind of keep that wheel going. You do. And, and it's, to me, it's, easier when it's easier. So I don't think, I think I would be less inclined to use it if the wheel were heavier. Okay. All so right. it's supposed to be a very easy motion that does not cause repetitive stress injuries or, or things like that, that can be started and stopped. And like a lot of um, textiles can be done when you have a lot of things going on. So you have to watch the, pot of tomatoes that's boiling down so you can can it or you have children in the home or things like that where you you have to be able to stop and start your projects traditionally so you get the back end of the bicycle yeah um, which holds one wheel mm-hmm. and uh and and then to keep the wheel spinning you have to basically grab the edge of the wheel and give it a spin i actually stick my fingers between the the spokes Mm. And give it a flick. So I, I never touch the wheel rim. Oh, okay. Clever, clever. So, uh, and, uh, uh, now, um, you describe some of the other parts that you made to, to complete the project. Sure. So I took the rear part of the bike off and I rotated it about 90 degrees. So the part that would be vertical that the bicycle seat goes in is now horizontal on the, the board that supports all of this. Um, and then I had to manufacture um, the spindle and portions. So I did a number of different um, iterations of the spindle. 
So often you see uh, a long steel shank with a pointy end as a spindle, um, or it has a small wheel on it. And so I made some of those wheels out of wood and then pounded them onto the steel or pounded the steel spike into that piece of wood so that the large tire wheel would be spinning a much smaller wheel that spun the spindle. Okay. Um, so I did a lot of that work. Um, you could do it on a lathe. I chose to set the height on a circular table saw so that it would cut partway through my round piece of wood and then used, um, I don't know what the part on the circular saw is called. The shuttle, maybe, that you push the wood back and forth against. Um, <laughs> does anybody know uh, what that part whoa. is called? I'm, anyway, I, I'm having a hard time picturing it. Um, well, I used the height of the circular saw to cut part way through a large round dowel so that I had a slot in the large round dowel that was much smaller diameter. And that way I could connect the large wheel to that small wheel, which was suspended on the front forks, um, to do that. So there was a lot of figuring out how bicycles worked and how to take them apart. And Jim Jusak was really helpful. He had worked in a bicycle shop. Um, in the past, and also um, the guys at FreeCycle were helpful in, like, talking through the project. <laughs> and so it's functionally two or one whole bicycle that I broke down and used parts from and then manufactured um, the spindle portion. And the string that's connecting the large wheel to the spindle is just your standard cotton kitchen twine. So there is very little, um, I needed a, a board, kitchen twine, and a large piece of wood to mount the bicycle parts to in order to um, convert a bicycle into a spinning wheel. So I, I bought a large dowel. I bought some, um, actually, I think we found the, <laughs> excuse me, the piece of metal that I used for the spindles in the metal rack. Okay. And then the, there was a big block of wood that I think we had on hand, just a, and you, you shaped that to be like the kind of like a foundation piece that everything gets mounted to, to make it all work. Yeah. So the boots actually made that board for me uh, on the sawmill. Beautiful. And then I, I planed it and routed the edges and made it look pretty and stuff. <laughs> Delightful. All right. Anything more about the spinning wheel? Uh, it spins lovely. It was really fun to spin on it. Um, it's definitely something that I would need to develop my skill at. I'm very used to working with electric wheels and drop spindles, and I've not had much experience with a charca or great wheel style, but it was a lot of fun to learn another way to spin wool. And I got to spin wool that was actually sheared on site by me and Samantha and a bunch of the other attendees. <laughs> okay, awesome. And and we'll, we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. I'm Edward Norton, 
No, not that one, the other one, and I love pies. No, not that kind, the other kind. Hermes is an old-school forum packed full of friendly people who occasionally give out a slice of pie. You'll never forget your first slice of pie. It made me feel so good, I had to buy a whole pie so I could share the love. Oh, and there's apples too. Sign up at permies.com to join in the world of homesteading and permaculture, and you too might get a slice of pie. But I know that you had at least two other projects that you ran point on. Uh, did you, which one did you want to talk about next? Uh, so I stopped an apothecary and I um, led the project to build Hugo cultures. Um, let's talk about Hugo cultures. Okay. How big a how big a Hugo culture did you build? Uh, the team and I built a Hugo culture that was probably fifty feet long. So I personally wow. built a twelve foot long section. One person built a six-foot section, and then a group of people built another 12-ish. So I guess that's closer to six, 30 feet. But anyways, we built a lot of hugo culture. And you planted it. And we planted it, and we mulched it, and we finished it up. And we had um, one really experienced uh, excavator operator, so that was really nice to be able to help give pointers and and talk about how you want to leave the site and and how it's like, you know, the sharp edges are smoothed out and you don't have these sort of dangerous trenches that Alan was talking about um, on the Spring Terrace project. Cool. 50 feet, that's a long hugel culture. That is, is healthy. That is beefy. What kind of stuff did you plant on it? Wow. Uh, all kinds Thunchokes. of stuff. Thunchokes? I don't have my, my magic list of stuff, but we definitely planted comfrey, sunchokes. We found a mullein stalk. Um, I'm sure there was some sepulcher grain. Definitely sepulcher grain, a lot of cover crops. Um, let me see if I can quickly find my list but that's okay i mean the thing is is that i think whenever you build a hugel culture it's important to seed it right away otherwise it, it just gets covered in weeds and then it's like it's harder to get the things you want to grow to grow in it whereas if you start right off you know putting in some sunchokes and some potatoes and and uh, sepulcher grain then you know if you get distracted by shiny objects and you come back to it a year later it's like this this jungle of food instead of you know just a bunch of weeds that are the same thing that are growing everywhere already absolutely so yay everything got planted and now i saw some of the video and it looked like you were putting in, I would, I would call it a, a corduroy style of when you're putting the wood inside the hugel culture, but maybe that was just for a short bit where, uh, the wood instead of like a, a bunch of logs going parallel to the hugel culture, these seem to be all, uh, shorter logs that were perpendicular to the direction of the hugel culture. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That was a really important feature that I did for my hugel culture and suggested that other people do for theirs. So the logs um, at the bottom are about four foot and then they're about three and a half and then three and then two and then one. 
And that way, um, while you're, you, you still have to cover up the ends, but the hoogle is able to be built much taller. So if the logs run parallel to the long axis of the hoogle culture, then you have to deal with the angle of repose and all that soil wanting to roll downhill. And so you have a much wider base. Whereas if you have um, the logs perpendicular to the length of your hoogle culture, then you have a much shorter angle of repose that is for each level. So by stacking four foot logs and then soil and then three and a half foot logs and then soil, you're able to have a much steeper hoogle culture and it won't slump or fall down the sides of things as easily. It and we were also it- able to incorporate the spent mycelium from Bose project. So that was really interesting. So my hoogle and one other has some of that mycelium. So I'm sort of curious if we get a good rain, if there'll be mushrooms on one of the hoogles. <laughs> so putting the wood in that way gives it more bones. Yeah, more vertical its, stability. To hold its shape better. You yep. have steeper sides now um, as opposed to uh, something that degrades into a little short pile. Yeah. So that is a, a way. I, I tend to like to have the sticks going every which way. I like to have mm. sticks that still have lots of branches on them and, uh, and it's like higgledy piggledy. So it's like a random skeleton. Whereas what you created was a very formal skeleton. Uh, is that, does that sound about right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And then there was the apothecary. Yeah. So I was tasked with um, stocking an apothecary for the people who live at Wheaton Labs. And I started by doing some research and finding out what sort of um, ailments that people who are there typically encounter. So it was headaches and um, like blisters or cuts or things like that. So I primarily used... Um, plants that grow on the lab and at at base camp. Um, and I made a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and I also, two of the boots wanted to learn how to make fire cider. So we did that. And that is a really easy way to cut down on um, costs for things like respiratory infections and the common cold. Uh, it's a really great thing. Um, I've also uh, been taking it for two years off and on. seems like I need some right now because I have a bit of a tickle in my throat. Um, but my sister has chosen to take it for the last two years. And instead of getting a bronchial infection that required um, steroids almost every winter, she hasn't even had to go to the doctor for any sort of bronchial infection or even a really bad cold. Um, since she started using Firesight. Yay! Yeah. So, do you, I don't suppose, uh, you can remember off the top of your head, uh, the different kinds of things that were put into this apothecary? So I probably harvested Kinnikinnik because it's a great urinary tract support. Um, but that gets, um, consumed as a tea, so I wouldn't have made anything out of it. Uh, definitely harvested comfrey and uh, purchased a few things that weren't available at the lab, like lavender. 
Um, and so then we took all of those things and dried them in the solar dehydrators and turned them into ointments and salves. And I chose to use the, um, do you still call it the easy bake coffin? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's much smaller now, which I like a right. lot better. But we still call um, it that. I, you know, we, we the name just sticks. <laughs> so it's basically a giant crock pot. It's this heating element and a well insulated box, and we put uh, wet plant material in oil in that because you don't want to allow wet plant material to sit in oil for a long time because it can spoil. Mm-hmm. So I either dry my plant material or I use some sort of heat to help extract that in a shorter time period. Um, so we did use that. We used the rocket mass heater and we infused a lot of those medicinal plants in oil. Uh, a couple of them, like the comfrey, um, in particular, I remember, um, adding beeswax to some of that oil where you get a salve and that is really helpful for cuts. Um, definitely went to the Clark Fork River in town and harvested some vertic root, and that's also good for cuts. Um, so we made a bunch of infused oils and then added beeswax to those. Um, we also made some tinctures, so using alcohol to extract um, plant constituents. Um, gosh, we sort of covered the covered the gamut and did a lot of things that could that are badge bits on fermies.com so um yeah i didn't didn't print a list of things so that i could refresh everybody's memory though before we got started now did you use both of the solar food dehydrators i don't remember specifically i i'm pretty sure I, I'm confident we use the older one that is, does not have the rocket assist, but I've been to Wheaton Labs for most of the events for the last two and a half, three years. So some of the things blend together. I know that I've hung comfrey in the rocket assist to dry, uh, even before it was finished. And it, it worked really well, even without the rocket assist. Um, works better now. I, I was thinking <laughs> of testing it um, this spring if people were interested in doing um, some medicinal plant or other food dehydration because um, it would be a similar solar aspect, different temperature and humidity than it would be in the fall. But Yeah. Now, uh, you're going to be here for the BB20 event, right? I am, yes. Okay, which is in April. Uh, while while we've got you here, uh, what do you, can you tell people a little bit about the BB20 event that's going to be going on this year? Sure. So BB20 is an event that Paul hosts, and it's basically it's pretty similar to the boot camp in structure, um, except that we get to do our own projects um, that are generally BB related. So. If you've earned 20 BBs, then you're invited to come, and we have to cook all of our own food. It's not like one of the formal events like the PDC where there's a cook, so we take care of that. Um, Paul asks us to complete the firewood uh, sand badge bit, and that sort of helps um, cover his costs of feeding us. 
and then we get to work on our own badge bits. So the first BB20 event I came, I remember we worked on um, kindling crackers, and that's when I built my first Hugel culture there at Wheaton Labs. And, um, yeah. It's a free event. Yeah, there's that. It sounds like there's going to be quite a few people here this year. Awesome. Uh, yeah. It's, and, and then the other thing is, is that part of the function of doing it is that uh, I host it for free, and people could come out, and they, they work on their BBs, and they probably leave it BB 60 or so. Uh, but, but, you know, they probably will gain, uh, 20 to 40, maybe even 60 BBs while they're here and, uh, uh, knocking them all out with, because we've got more tools and materials and things to help people, uh, get to PEP one. And, uh, uh, then the next thing is, is that for all the people that attended, we asked them if they would like to get, uh, a free ticket to the summer skip event. And that they would play a, a uh, like a half-assed instructor role. And so, uh, they wouldn't be a full-time instructor, more like, a, would it be a half-time instructor, something like about that? Um, so Opal, and I know that's what you did last year. Yes. Yeah. So like, how much time do you think that you spent being an instructor versus an attendee during the skip event last year? I spent 80 or more percent of my time being an instructor or prepping or like being a direct instructor or prepping for the next thing that I was teaching. Okay. Um, and so Mike and I and Stephen, the boot was super helpful. Um, Mike and I ran the event for the first week and then Penny came and joined us for the second week. And so or vice versa. I think Penny might have been there for the first week, and Stephen and Mike and I were there for all both weeks. So my um, understanding is that for the BB20 event, outside of you and people that you know had been here before, um, zero attendees of the BB20 event opted to come in as a half-assed instructor during the skip event. So we ended up limiting the number of people that could attend the skip event because we want to keep a good ratio of instructors to students. Yeah. Mike and Penny and I had all been to a BB20 before, but nobody that, um, not anybody from that spring came to that summer's skip event as an instructor. Right. And so then if we were to have, say, six people that uh, came to the BB20 event and elected to come to the, uh, um, skip event, then rather than being an instructor 80% of the time, it might be closer to 50% of the time. That would be awesome because then I could work <laughs> on more of my BBs. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully we'll pull that off. All right. Setting, setting the BB20 event aside, um, which I mean, step one, get 20 BBs. Right. You know, we can go from there. Uh, uh, but it's in April. And anyway, is, are there any other things that you, uh, worked on during the PTJ that you want to talk about at this time? Uh, nope. Nope. So I'm going to suggest that the next person we talk to is Samantha because of course part of what you were talking about was the spinning wheel that you made and how it was using wool fresh off a critter. 
And that's because Samantha brought a bunch of her animals, and then there was actual shearing going on and a bunch of different animal things going on. And so maybe the, the – I'm sure, Samantha, did you get a chance to use Opalin's spinning wheel? I did. It was. I was really impressed with what she made. It was really awesome. She started talking about it a few months before the PTJ, and I was really curious what that was going to be, and it was really amazing. It's very um, elegant, the way that it works, because it's the wheel is so big, and it just takes the wool right out of your hands. It's really nice. <laughs> and and you, you brought some other contraptions, too, to, to, you know, there was a lot of effort going into from shearing into something else. Yeah, I wanted to show the whole process of taking the wool off the animals. I have hand shears, so we're just, they're just like really big scissors, kind of like they did it in the old days. And it, then we um, carded the wool, which means you kind of comb it and get it cleaned out. And we spun it on Opalin spinning wheel and a spinning wheel that I brought. And then we put it on the loom and, and wove it into a little piece of fabric. <laughs> so I know that it seems like a lot of people come for, I don't know, the rockety things or um, the roundwood timber framing stuff or whatever, but it, it did seem like these projects started to get a little bit more attention uh, with the animals. So a lot of people are like, oh, I don't know. They just love animals, I guess. And so next thing you know, everybody's everybody's coming down for that part. Yeah, cute animals, I think, you know, baby sheep and cute little ducks. You know, everybody wants to pet them. So uh, um, you already have a spinning wheel, and it, of course, functions in a in a slightly different style, and it's it's professionally made and and uh, uh, very very fancy. Now, um, I I get the impression that what Opalin created is pretty damn good. Oh, yeah. What she made is really beautiful and really nice. You could spend a lot of yarn on it. So, um, uh, I, I believe Oakland took the whole, uh, lamb's fleece home to play with, actually. That brown one. <laughs> and, and Oakland, is that, is that fleece turned into something now? No, I believe I actually left all of it with, um, the spinning wheel so that people uh, would have a fleece to work with. Oh, okay. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> so if the the people coming to the PTJ this year they can um they can fire up uh the bicycle spinning wheel uh because the wool is right there with it the bit of fleece. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So Samantha, there were a bunch of other projects that you ran point on. What would you like to talk about next? Um well the one thing I thought was really fun was playing with the pond. Um I have been playing with making river systems and ponds with ducks and geese here at my farm in Washington. And so to get to work at your place and use the excavator and smash the pond in there and speak with Alan about the differences between the clay, which is the, where the animals poop and, and make a muck layer versus the physical compaction that we were doing with the excavator and with the horses of compacting the clay and the different benefits with those two methods. It was to me really fascinating. He explained that the glay works great, except that it's an anaerobic experience. And so as soon as your pond is a living pond, it will eat up all that glay. The 
and then it won't it won't be there anymore. So if you want your pond to last and then also grow plants, you have to do it in a physical compaction. So I that thought is, that was really interesting. Which the animals do, especially the horses. Uh, I think sheep will do it as well. There, there are some people who are suggesting that ducks and geese will do it, but I'm not seeing that so much. I think that they do it with their bills to some degree, but it's, it's a very shallow kind of compaction, if anything, but it's definitely not with their feet. They don't have the right kind of feet to create the proper kind of compaction. A lot of people theorize that it's because there's been a lot of people that have sealed a pond with ducks or geese. But I think it's from the the bills action, not not from the feet. And the anyway. glay layer, the the poo, um, it becomes very small particulate and fills in all these little cracks, and it makes a it makes a gooey layer that will stop the water. But as Alan beautifully explained to me, once you have a, the the living aerobic systems in your pond, it will eat up all that glay. Yeah, and it'll go away. Yeah. So it works while the animals are there. I've used the ducks and geese for compaction in on a small scale, on little trenches, then that works really well. Mm-hmm. On a bigger pond like you had, I think we really needed the excavator and we needed the bigger animals. Yeah. Yeah. I think horses do a good job of compaction. And and uh uh the the sheep hoof has like this, this shape that's really good. So farmers used to complain about sheep on their land. They called them range maggots and they said you don't want to leave sheep on your land too long because they'll seal the land and the water won't run into the soil anymore. It'll run off. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like, well, that's exactly what we're looking for. And in this particular spot, so this is a pond that was originally created by Zach Weiss years ago and it, Never really quite held water, uh, and, and there's a lot of debate about why. And setting that aside, we put in a new well that is a particular kind of solar well. Whenever, whenever the sun shines, the pump at the bottom of the well pumps, and it fills a cistern. And then if the cistern gets full, there's an overflow which goes to the pond. Um, now, uh, there was a, there was a, uh, an interesting thing that happened. And that is that the pipe that come, that comes out of the pond, um, uh, it was poly pipe that came out of the, came out of the cistern to go to the pond and, um, uh, it came out of the cistern high. So it's the overflow. And then it goes straight down and then it kind of goes, a little bit levelish, downhillish to the pond because the pond is over there. It's like, um, I don't know, 150 feet away, 200 feet away, something like that. And, um, and I believe that what we learned is that, uh, because the pipe went a little bit up and down, a little sine wavy over to the, uh, the pond, it was, it, 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 the water was not flowing correctly. It makes sense that the water would flow. I mean, the water coming out of the cistern is much higher, but it basically, uh, the boots figured it out, I believe, or was it, um, was it Jim Jukesek? Do you remember who got up there and, and said, it's the sine wavy part that makes it not work? Yeah, I think it, I think it was Jim. He was up there messing with it. 
And, and so I, I was having a hard time believing it. And so I went and did research and verified that Jim was right and I was wrong. And it's like, if you've got this wavy part, even though it's down very low, then, um, it's like little bubbles and burps get into the line and won't let the water move through. Yeah, that's it's, right. Um, when, when this discussion was popping up, um, they were first looking to see if they had an obstruction in the line. That was the first. And, um, I recommended they check, uh, for exactly what you're talking about. And they went back and did so and found that, that issue because it, it, you can get hydraulic blockages, um, with little airlocks in it if, uh, if you get that, um, up down thing. So they did verify that that was actually the case. So I kind of thought, hey, as long as there's water pressure, because it's coming from high up on the cistern, and there's like an immediate eight-foot drop, and then it's going to drop another seven feet on its way to the pond, I'm thinking like, won't, no problem. It's, it, the water's going to keep moving because the water at the top is higher than the water at the bottom. And there's no point in the line where it goes higher than where the water goes into the line. And so therefore, easy peasy, never a problem. But it turns out, you know, exactly what you're saying, Alan, that if you've got a little bit of up and down, even though it's all of it is well below where the water comes in, that it is a particular kind of hydraulic problem. So you have to make a distinction here between piped flow and open channel flow, okay? So you think, well, it's in a pipe. Obviously, it's piped flow, and the answer is no, not necessarily. A piped flow is when the pipe is completely full and has no gas in it. It's completely full of liquid, okay? Right. And there's, there's no, uh, there's no air on top of the liquid, right? Right. That's called piped flow. And in that is the case where, Paul, what you're talking about will be true. You, you basically have this solid wall of water that's filling the pipe and the pressure of the water pushing behind it will just push. So you can have little ups and overs and so forth if you have true pressurized piped flow but when the pipe does not is not full you don't technically have what's called piped flow you have open channel flow which basically is water flowing in the cupped bottom half of the pipe with air on top of it so it's like the other half of the pipe is just acting like a roof see what i'm saying and there's air on top right when right, that right, right. happens the, the, you're in open channel flow and that's when these kinds of things we're talking about can occur. So I, I did a bunch of research on that because I was angry with myself for being so terribly wrong. And, uh, it turns out even if you were to add a vent on the uphill side of these pipes, so that way, you know, any air would be excluded from the system every single time. Uh, and, and the air wouldn't be able to choke it, that it would still be a problem. Yep. And it, and it has to do with, um, uh, 
how if the water has to go up and down inside of a pipe, the the amount of of laminar resistance just accumulates to the point where the pipe on the other end, water won't come out at all, even though there's not even an air bubble effect. Mm-hmm. But the air bubbles, of course, make it far worse because the air bubbles want if if it, well, let's just say the air bubbles may make it far worse. But even without the air in the in the pipe, it's it still doesn't work. So that's why you want your pipe to be like straight and not wavy. So all of this is to say that while Samantha was trying to seal the pond, we were having a hell of a time getting water into her pond so she could test all of this. (laughs) Fortunately, it got figured out, and then the boots went to work, and that was solid rock in there. So they got down in there with pickaxes and had to pick at that rock to get it to, to take out the high point so it could be this nice kind of like steady downflow level. And, and now, and now water's getting into the pond, but, but the water, I believe the water started going into the pond at about the same time that Samantha took her animals away. <laughs> Is that about right, Samantha? I don't remember. Well, it was trickling in throughout, but we definitely weren't getting as much as you wanted to have in there. But right. the, you could see the level of the water rising slowly. Okay. So I'm excited to see after we've had this winter, as the snow melts, see how that pond fills up. And we're not using as, because that was another thing too, is we started using a lot of water out of that cistern. And so it wasn't allowing for anything to go into the pond. Um, and, uh, but through the winter, we've used hardly any water from the cistern. So all of that water would have gone straight into the pond, although, you know, it's all based on solar panels. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's snow on the solar panels and, and, uh, the days are a little shorter now, but still it should be 100% of that water going into your pond there. That's so awesome. yeah, I haven't been up to see it. I haven't seen a picture of it since. So, um, uh, but I know that a couple of the boots have been up there lately. Maybe, maybe they know I should ask them, how's that pond going? Is it full yet? So Samantha, do you have any other projects you want to talk about? Um, I think that's, I think that's all we did. I'd love, um, I think that the spinning and the, and the wool, oh, we paddock shifted. Another thing we did is we built one paddock around the pond so we could have intensive tromping and, um, stomping in the pond area. And because it was so warm and the water was so cool, the horses would actually get in the middle and dance around and, uh, and play in the water because it was only a few feet deep. And then around the pond, we built paddocks. So with a, with a mesh wire that's not galvanized, we would tie it to trees because all the way around your pond is forested. And then I would have the horses and sheep graze down the forested areas. And we built four paddocks and hopefully this summer we can build some more. And I'm really excited to see how that land comes back. Because we, we grazed it pretty solidly and we manured it pretty heavily. So it should come back really, really well. Delightful. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, so, um, I, this is a good time to say that I think that the, the number of instructors on this call is about one third of our instructors. So we have one more instructor to talk to 
today. And then uh, tomorrow we're going to record another podcast with, I think, five more instructors. And then I think we got one more podcast to record with uh, whoever's left over and uh, who didn't, who couldn't make it to these two. Um, so maybe uh, three or four more. So we've had a lot of instructors. I think we ended up with about a dozen. And uh, hopefully the PTJ this upcoming year will do even more. And so, uh, anyway, our last instructor is Bo. Bo, what were your projects? Bo had to sign out, Paul, so he's still on the call so that we didn't all get kicked off, but he had to leave. Oh, oh, okay. Um, so that would mean that uh, that's it for today then, right? Yep. Is, is there anything else we need to say about the PTJ? About... Well, the PDJ last year, the PDJ this upcoming year, or about the upcoming movie? Hey, you should advertise when the early bird ticket price ends. Well, now, that's an interesting thing, because <laughs> I think that it was supposed to end, like, right about now, but I'm, I have this, this idea that is very risky to me, and... I, I've, I've talked to, I don't know how many people and I've just decided to just take the risk. And so what I want to do is I want the PTJ to be bigger. I want it, I want us to have more. I want us to do more videoing and uh, I want there to be more to video. I want to have an even grander Kickstarter like a year in the future. I want to do more, 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 more. So. I'm going to take a risk. I am go I'm turning to the instructors for this year's PTJ. I'll be uh, offering more than I did last year. And I'm hoping that we'll reach more instructors. So hopefully we'll have like 30 or 40% more instructors this upcoming year and uh, offering a deal so that everybody who takes video that they'll get paid for the video that they take that makes it into a movie. Um, and I want to make it so that the ticket price is going to stay at the super early bird price. Uh, the idea being is that we'll have more attendees. And uh, so, you know, more builds, more everything, more forward velocity. It'll just be a bigger, grander, more glorious event. So I'm taking risks uh, with paying for more instructors. Um, I hope that more people will buy tickets. And, uh, and, and I know it's at a lower price, so it's kind of it's, – it's like I'm being an idiot in every possible way as a businessman. But um, I'm hoping that the Kickstarter will do well enough to subsidize the event to take out the risk. So I'm kind of freaking out about all these risks I'm taking, but I am choosing to roll the dice. And I hope, I hope that the people listening to this, these words right now will go buy a ticket to this year's event. And that would make it so that I, I'm taking on less risk because um, even because the, the ticket price is right now, very, very, very low. And, um, it, it's, yeah, it's, 
I don't want to get into the details of it, but I hope that um, if we can sell like 40 tickets to this event, then um, it'll take a lot of the sting out and I'll be a lot less nervous, especially if they buy it now before we've done the Kickstarter, because I feel nervous right now. I think that's an awesome plan for this summer, and I wanted to give the date. So July 3rd to July 14th in Missoula, Montana, for this year's PTJ, the 2023 PTJ. Please buy tickets. Please buy tickets. <laughs> Please buy tickets. <laughs> so, uh, but, but we've already started talking to some more uh, instructors that we have never had here before. And we're bringing back many of the instructors we have had here before. Um, and uh, uh, I thought last year's event was amazing. I think the movie is going to be amazing. Uh, and I think this year's event is going to be even more amazing. And uh, uh, there's a poor man's poll so people can vote on what projects. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping it'll be grand. All right. Ah, anything else we should talk about today for this podcast? In that case, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about permaculture technology, permaculture, (laughs) and homesteading all the time. All the time. Thank you. Hey, this is T. Blankentrip. Have you seen the new video of Wheaton Labs? It is permaculture awesomeness with all new and improved things like more rocket mass heaters, easy bake coffin, Willy Wonka, rocket cooktop 2.0, and the truly passive greenhouse. To see more, go to permies.com slash tour. Again, that is permies.com slash tour.